Many of us are not getting enough sleep. If you have a neurotransmitter defect that predisposes you to mental illness, it's almost certainly going to have a, a parallel impact upon sleep and the sleep-wake systems. So there's a genuine mechanistic overlap between the pathways that generate normal sleep and the pathways that generate normal mental health. On this episode of the American Scientist podcast, the link between our body's rhythms, sleep science, and mental health. I'm Katie Burke. In the United States, 30 to 40% of adults aren't getting enough sleep. That's according to the U.S. Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. Sometimes there's just too much to do. And other times, no matter how hard we try, we just can't seem to get enough sleep. Insomnia and sleep apnea are remarkably common. The consequences of sleep deprivation are very real. Not only can fatigue cause deadly errors, lack of sleep can also affect mental health. Over the past couple decades, researchers have found more and more evidence linking sleep with mental health. One of those researchers is neuroscientist Russell Foster. Back in 2016, I heard Foster speak at the Euroscience Open Forum about the work his lab and collaborators have been doing to link our body's biological rhythms to mental health. I was intrigued and interviewed him. But I decided not to release the interview until now, 2021, because science is a long process. And as a science reporter, I often follow story leads for years before the work is finished, peer-reviewed, and published. One of the most intriguing parts of my 2016 interview with Foster is that he mentioned promising work on a pharmaceutical target that mimics the effects of light on the body's biological clock. Earlier this year, Foster and his colleagues published that work. And in the September-October 2021 issue of American Scientist, I reported on his team's research. You can read more about the details in the magazine. But in our interview here... Foster gives an overview of the links between the body's biology and circadian rhythms, the molecular pathways in the brain that affect our sleep rhythms, and what all that has to do with mental health. Here's our interview, which I began by asking him what he does as director of the Sleep and Circadian Neuroscience Institute at the University of Oxford. We're interested in understanding the fundamental nature of sleep and circadian rhythms. What happens when those systems fall apart uh, across the health spectrum? Developing evidence-based interventions to try and stabilize sleep-wake in these various health conditions and then disseminating this information to the broadest and widest community from scientists all the way to healthcare professionals. There's starting to be mounting evidence that the circadian clock and the ways that our modern lives put us in touch with light or don't has effects on mental health issues. Can you tell me about what evidence there is so far? So we've known since the 1880s, Kraepelin, the father of psychiatry, talked about sleep disruption in patients who we now classify as having schizophrenia. But it was largely dismissed and overlooked. In the 70s, with the introduction of the antipsychotics, it was assumed that the sleep disruption was an artifact of the antipsychotics, or that because individuals with schizophrenia can't hold down a job, they go to bed late and get up late. And I was chatting to a psychiatrist. He said, yeah, well, everybody knows, you know, mental health patients have sleep problems, and that's because of lack of a job or because of the antipsychotics. So we looked at this systematically and discovered that independent of drug, independent of whether they were working or not, their rhythms weren't just bad, they were smashed. These are the most extraordinary sleep-wake patterns, abnormal sleep-wake patterns I've ever seen. And we began to think about why that might be. Why is 
sleep, so hugely disrupted in conditions like schizophrenia and bipolar, and to a lesser extent in, in conditions like depression. And with the increasing understanding of the neuroscience of how sleep and circadian rhythms are generated within the brain, and an understanding that essentially the sleep-wake systems draw from all the key neurotransmitter systems and multiple brain structures. So sleep-wake is a global brain event. Therefore, if you have a neurotransmitter defect that predisposes you to mental illness, it's almost certainly going to have a, a parallel impact upon sleep and the sleep-wake systems. So we tested this hypothesis by taking genes that have been linked to human schizophrenia and then mutating those genes in a mouse and saying, well, what happens to the patterns of sleep-wake in a mouse? And some of the key genes that have been linked to schizophrenia have a profound effect upon the stability of sleep-wake timing in our mice. So there's a genuine mechanistic overlap between the pathways that generate normal sleep and the pathways that generate normal mental health. Now, furthermore, of course, the disrupted sleep could exacerbate the mental illness and the mental illness could exacerbate the sleep problems. So we explored that by my colleague, Dan Freeman, by taking patients with schizophrenia, partially stabilizing their sleep-wake and looking at the impact on their delusional paranoia. And what was so exciting is that he was able to partially stabilize sleep-wake and schizophrenia and reduce levels of delusional paranoia by 50%. So that suggests that the sleep-wake systems represent a new therapeutic target. If you can stabilize sleep-wake, you'll not only reduce some of the problems of sleep-wake disruption, so the cognitive impairment, the inability to process information, and the longer-term problems of cardiovascular disease, diabetes 2, which are also very common in severe mental illness, but also, it seems, have a direct and positive impact upon the level of the symptoms of these conditions. So for those who want to start using this information to help their own mental health or some loved one's mental health, what can they do now before there are these new therapies to work with? So stabilization of the sleep-wake cycle can be partially achieved without any drug intervention by stabilizing the light-dark cycle exposure. So morning bright light exposure is really important for setting the clock. So you try and stabilize sleep-wake as much as possible. For the first few days or weeks, you might have to use an alarm clock to drive people out of bed, even somewhat unwillingly at that time. But then when they get up, they must expose themselves to as bright a light as possible, ideally go outside. They should eat at that time and essentially just do stuff at a regular stable interval. And then before they go to sleep, Bedtime sleep should be scheduled. They should know when they're going to sleep. They should plan to go to sleep, minimize light exposure before they're, you know, half an hour at least before they're going to sleep, turn off the devices, the gaming devices, the social media, and do things that wind them down. So whether it's listening to music or quietly reading a book, essentially treating, prioritizing sleep and building a daily life pattern around the need for stable sleep and a stable 24-hour environment that you can create. So where are you now with these studies? When will you start working towards these therapeutic targets and testing them? And what are you working on right now? So one of the most exciting things that the team have done is discover that the eye has a third class of light sensor. We're familiar with the rods and cones which mediate our sense of vision, but you can lose all of those rods and cones and have no sense of vision at all. And you can still regulate your clock to the light-dark cycle. And that's because there's a third photoreceptor system within the eye based upon ganglion cells. Now, the ganglion cells form the optic nerve and they send information into the brain. 
But one out of every hundred of those ganglion cells is directly light sensitive. So this is really exciting because it meant that you can be visually blind but not clock blind. And the properties of those photoreceptors are rather different from the rods and cones so that they interact with the molecular clockwork in rather complicated and fascinating ways. And after the discovery of the receptors, we thought, well, well, how do they interact with the molecular clockwork? And in the process of discovering those mechanisms, we realized that we could essentially provide a pharmacological mimic for the effects of light on the clock. So what light will do is change in the clock cell of the brain levels of calcium and levels of cyclic AMP. We have a cassette of drugs that will do the same sort of thing. So we've been testing those drugs in mice and giving the drugs at different times and different doses and looking at the effect of shifting or entraining the biological clock of those mice. And the data have been absolutely spectacular. I've never seen anything like it. We can genuinely, in a mouse, essentially replace light with one of these drugs and achieve the same effects as light. So the next big question is, can we take those to the human condition? Now, the class of drugs that we started to work with have already been developed and are FDA approved, but for other things. They weren't successful. They failed, you know, I think some of them were developed for alleviating some of the cognitive decline in Alzheimer's. They didn't work for that, but they are, at least in mice, really effective at shifting the clock. Question is, will it also work in humans? And I don't know the answer to that is, but I'm immensely optimistic. You mentioned that the rods and cones are used for how we see the world, but there are these other cells that sense light for us and help us sense time and keep our clock in line. So what does that mean for the visually impaired? So it's been a really exciting time because we've been working very closely with our clinical colleagues in ophthalmology. And the appreciation that the eye is both the organ of space, the visual system, but also the organ of time. And this second role of the eye hasn't been fully appreciated. So when a clinician will talk to an individual and explain that they've had visual loss, they also need to check that those photosensitive retinal ganglion cells are still there. If they're still there, then even though they aren't aware of the light, they still need to be encouraged to get out there, expose themselves to sufficient daytime light that will allow them to lock their clock onto the external world. And I think this is having a really big impact on the way we think about the nature of blindness and indeed how we then treat individuals with severe ocular disease. Well, Russell, thank you so much for talking with us and good luck with the research. Thank you very much indeed. That was neuroscientist Russell Foster, who studies the link between our body's rhythms and mental health. In the September-October 2021 issue of American Scientist, read Fixing Broken Biological Clocks. It's an article I wrote that discusses Foster's team's recently published work on pharmaceutical ways to mimic the effects of light on the brain's clockwork. You've been listening to a podcast from American Scientist magazine, published by Sigma Psi, the Scientific Research Honor Society. This podcast was produced by Robert Frederick. I'm Katie Burke. Thanks for joining us. Thank you.